Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Season 3 of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, where you will find evidence-based insights from world-leading experts to inform your practice. Today on the podcast, we're going to take a deeper dive into heart rate variability and team sport athletes with expert Dr. Andrew Flatt from Georgia Southern University. In this episode, Dr. Flatt reviews the basic physiology of HRV and applications for team sport athletes, as well as assessing individual HRV responses in athletes in preseason training. He'll also discuss his work in collegiate football players. The HRV trends he's seeing in players with greater body mass, the potential benefits, as well as limitations of in-season monitoring, and also share some practical insights on assessing athletes and interpreting their results. It was a real pleasure here to interview Dr. Flatt, who runs a terrific, terrific program at Georgia Southern University. And if you enjoy today's content, listen out for the end of the show as Dr. Flatt throws out an invitation for folks keen to study HRV to do a master's at Georgia Southern. So head on down to Georgia, enjoy some sunshine, perhaps an opportunity for a listener here to take advantage of. Awesome. You can check out some of the papers discussed here and the podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. If you're interested in more on this topic, then definitely circle back to season one, episode 27 with Professor Paul Larson and Dr. Daniel Plews talking HRV in endurance athletes. Also, you can check out Season 2, Episode 25, with Dr. Ramsey Nijem of the NBA's Sacramento Kings, talking workload monitoring and player development in the NBA. And of course, if you're interested in football players, Season 2, Episode 31, with Dr. Ross Anderson, on seasonal changes in body composition in collegiate football players. Remember, you can check out all these experts and more on YouTube, iTunes, or your favorite pod-catching platform. Make sure you subscribe because you don't want to miss any of the fantastic, fantastic guests we've got lined up here in 2019. All right, before we get started, a quick word from this episode's sponsor, Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. No sugar, no artificial flavors, absolutely nothing added. What is it? Totem Sport is the world's purest mineral-rich ocean water. Collected above natural algae blooms in the Atlantic Ocean, Totem Sport is the only sport drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% natural sport drink, tested and approved by Informed Sport and Informed Choice. Use the promo code BUBS10, B-U-B-B-S-10, at checkout and save 10% at totemsport.co.uk and defy the norm. All right, let's get rolling. Season 3, Episode 7. Enjoy. My guest today is Dr. Andrew Flatt, an assistant professor and sports medicine graduate program director at Georgia Southern University. Andrew has a PhD in human performance from the University of Alabama, where he worked with football, swimming, and soccer. He has an extensive athletic background, including hockey, rugby, collegiate football, and raw powerlifting, and his research interest is in heart rate variability and its application to monitoring training status in athletes. Andrew, thanks so much for taking the time today. It's a pleasure, Mark. Thanks for having me here. Awesome. Well, Andrew, maybe you can kick off this conversation by telling us a little more about your background in sport and powerlifting and, and how that sort of dovetailed into your career in academia. Yeah, so I grew up playing sports. Uh, I'm actually originally from Cincinnati, Ohio, but my uh, my dad's job moved us to Toronto. So I grew up in the Toronto area and uh, naturally played a lot of hockey. Um, nice, played nice. Rugby. Yeah, played uh, in Richmond Hill for the Richmond Hill Stars for many years. Um, but uh, I probably did it uh, overdid it with hockey. Um, it was you know it was club hockey in Richmond Hill. It was school hockey. It was uh, hockey on the PlayStation and the Sega, and then there was mini hockey in the basement. And, uh, I, you know, I pretty easy to do in Toronto area, isn't it? Overdoing it with hockey. Yeah. And, uh, 
actually, I shouldn't admit this, but uh, I grew up a, a big time Pittsburgh Penguins fan because uh, mostly because Mario Lemieux, who I think is uh, the best hockey player ever. So amazing. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I kind of burnt out with hockey. I kind of lost interest in it. I started playing a bit of rugby in high school and then football. And uh, football, football brought me to uh, Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, Ontario. Um, and I played there from 2004 to 2008. We won a national championship in 2005. Um, and that's really kind of where I started to grow my interest in strength and conditioning. Um, right out of university, I took a strength and conditioning job at a private high school just north of Toronto, where I uh, coached as a football coach, the defensive line, um, and got into competitive powerlifting. Um, and, and through my uh, competitive powerlifting, you know, I went through some stages of overreaching and, uh, you know, bombed out, uh, pulled out of meets and so forth. I, you know, I was trying to find a better way uh, to guide my my training so I could know when I should back off and um, and and kind of prevent these major decrements in performance um, rather than just trying to following a strict plan. Um, I probably read some advanced textbooks way too early um, that were way over my head. For example, one of the first books I read was Super Training, um, nice. which I'm sure you're familiar with that book. Um, I probably should have started with a book like Starting Strength um, or one of Mike Boyle's books, something that's you know real practical. Um, but I learned about cybernetic periodization, you know, which is you know what does that mean? Incredible. Um, yeah, and and so I, I started to take an interest in okay, maybe we don't need to follow a strict plan to get us to where we want to be, but we could be a little bit more fluid with things. Um, and and eventually, I found HRV just kind of on the internet, learning about overtraining and so forth. Landon Evans. Uh, was using HRV with athletes, so I was like, "All right, I got to look into this." I, I purchased uh, an iPod Touch at the time. This is back in like 2010. Um, I, I bought an iPod Touch just for the sole reason that I could use an HRV application. Um, the only one on the Fantastic. market at the time, yeah, the only one on the market at the time was iFleet. So I ordered the a chest strap and the uh, receiver that you plug in, and and I got started. And I've literally been doing it every day ever since. Um, just. Just seeing how it responds to different things, just personal experimentation, and uh, and then that led me into the research side of things. You know, um, I, w- I was making such really or some really interesting observations, just seeing how it was responding to stress, to travel, to illness, and I was thinking, you know, this this would be great working with athletes, which is you know what I was doing at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that brought me to uh, pursue a master's degree, um, and I wanted to go. Uh, move south of the border because strength and conditioning at the time was, you know, there, it was much bigger down in the U.S. For so sure. um, got accepted into a master's program just south of Pittsburgh at a place called Cal U. Um, got a graduate assistantship position there as a strength and conditioning coach. Um, so I was able to work with athletes and uh, directed all my coursework to, to digging into the available research on heart rate variability, which at the time was pretty much exclusively on endurance athletes. So, you know, I was like, you know, I, I'm I'm interested in powerlifting and sports like football and hockey and rugby. You know, am I barking up the wrong trees? Does this have any application? Um, and based on my personal experience with it, I, I certainly believed that uh, it could be of some use. So, you know, I, from that point on, I was like, well, I want to start uh, researching this tool with team sport athletes, with anaerobic athletes, and uh, kind of the rest is history. I, I I determined that you know the PhD route is probably uh, something that would work out for me, um, or something that I'd be interested in doing. I was terrified of, of actually pursuing it, you know, the, the fear of failure. Um, Absolutely. but, uh, yeah, I ended up meeting, uh, a professor at an NSCA conference. Uh, Dr. Mike Esco has become my really good friend. Long story short, we hit it off at a conference. I ended up going to, uh, work with him in his lab at Auburn university in Montgomery campus. And uh, we did some research together. I taught a few courses. Um, once I had a paper or two under my belt, I applied for the PhD program at Alabama. Uh, they gave me a chance. I got in and uh, I, I ran with it. And, uh, you know, it was very fortunate to make some connections at Alabama and, and work with some of the athletics teams there, uh, including um, the women's soccer team, the sprint swimmers, and, uh, and football, which I ended up doing my dissertation with. So, And that brings me to my... Uh, First faculty position. I'm now at Georgia Southern University at the Savannah campus, living uh, near the beach where I don't have to shovel my driveway. <laughs> in. My car, my Vitamin D status is looking good these days, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, listen, I'm looking forward here to diving into your work around HRV and team sport, but maybe before we, we do that, we can kind of zoom back out to 30,000 feet and get listeners on the same page here and, and perhaps do a quick review of 
you know, the basic physiology of HRV and what exactly, you know, you're measuring here? Yeah, so heart rate variability is just simply the measurement of time between beats. Um, your heart rate varies in response to respiration. Um, our instantaneous, or, or sorry, our intrinsic heart rate beats at a, a rate of about 100 beats per minute. That's if we were to sever any nerves from it. The SA node will depolarize and uh, and beat the heart at about 100 beats per minute. But through uh, innervation of the vagus nerve, um, we could actually slow heart rate down below 100 beats per minute. And with sympathetic nerves, we can accelerate heart rate over 100 beats per minute. And um, so the heart rate variability itself isn't, there's nothing magical about the time between heartbeats. It's really what it's reflecting, and it reflects autonomic nervous system function. And I think Stephen Porges said it best when he says the autonomic nervous system plays a fundamental role in the physiological expression of stress. And so um, if we believe that stress uh, impacts recovery status, if it impacts health, sleep quality, um, then it might be something we want to track and quantify. Um, And heart rate variability serves as a reasonably good indicator of stress. Um, Now, what are the determinants of heart rate variability? Heart rate variability... Uh, varies from person to person for a number of reasons. Um, there's there's some studies that have looked at uh, you know irritability estimates of heart rate variability, and about 40 to 48 percent of your heart rate variability is explained by your genetics. Um, your age is yeah. As you get older too, heart rate variability tends to decrease. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, your sex can also play a role. So women tend to have higher HRV than men, um, and even your race. So African Americans tend to have higher heart rate variability than European Americans. Um, your aerobic fitness, the more aerobically fit you are, you can, you can start to modify some of this. So you can offset the age related decline in heart rate variability. If you maintain or build up your aerobic fitness, your body fat would be another one. So the the higher your body fat, you tend to have lower heart rate variability. Um, in my experience and and based on the research that I've seen that the major factors that affect heart rate variability by far are your sleep your exercise or your training load and, and any type of mental or psychological stress. Um, to a lesser extent, we can impact heart rate variability through our nutrition. And I say to a lesser extent simply because the, you know, there's not as much re- research in this area, but of the available research, it appears that making sure our, you know, our omega-3 fatty acid intake, um, you know, can help with heart rate variability or help improve heart rate variability. And I've seen one study that, uh, found an association between green vegetable intake and heart rate variability. Um, nice, nice. Get the, and, good way to get the greens in for folks. Yeah, absolutely. And then alcohol. Um, HRV is pretty sensitive to alcohol. You know, one drink probably won't have too much of a, a negative effect, um, but several drinks, and I'd, I'd put my uh, money on it that your HRV the next day is going to be um, much lower than, than normal. So... Um, so bringing this to, to athletics and, and monitoring athletes and so forth, uh, Jamie Stanley, Paul Orson, and, and Martin Boucher wrote an excellent systematic review in sports medicine back in 2013 detailing the typical HRV responses to training. Um, and this gives us a model to kind of have an expectation of what we might expect to see in athletes um, just to start off with. And um, so short-term recovery of heart rate variability um, could take minutes to hours, um, and it's uh, affected by uh, plasma catecholamines, lactate concentrations, um, res- uh, your body temperature when that returns mm-hmm. uh, to normal values, and so forth. Um, longer-term recovery, um, we're, ta- we're talking you know, 24, 48 hours later, appears to be related to uh, changes in fluid balance homeostasis and uh, plasma volume changes. Um, there's probably some endocrine factors that, that may play a role there as well. Um, after a low intensity session, you know, because we're not accumulating as much metabolites and so forth, recovery will be much quicker. Um, HRV shouldn't change too much from day to day with low intensity aerobic exercise, but with high intensity aerobic exercise or high intensity training, uh, it could take, uh, you know, depending on your fitness level, 24 to 48 hours. Um, so what I would expect to see in response to a high intensity training session is a decrease in HRV from baseline the next day, and then it should come back up to baseline 48 hours later, maybe even above baseline. Mm-hmm. Um, but but what, what I've observed and um, what I've seen in, uh, indirectly in some of the studies that I've done with uh, some of my colleagues is the first exposure to high-intensity training will provoke a pretty substantial response in HRV, but when you administer that, res- that, that dose of training again, 
Um, or even if you increase the dose a little bit, it's, it's managed much better. And, and I mean, that's reflecting adaptation. So, 100%. Um, and uh, segues fantastically into, you know, your applications in team sport and some of your early work that you did in soccer players and assessing the individual HRV responses to preseason training. So if we, if we kind of start here in that preseason training camp um, mentality of, of obviously athletes coming off an off season, you know, can you share some of the themes that you picked up in your study and that w- that the practitioners or coaches might see in, in preseason athletes? Yeah. Uh, you know what? Uh, it's, I'm glad you brought up preseason because preseason is a very interesting time of the year where everything you think you know about heart rate variability, um, assuming you don't have an advanced understanding of it, it changes a little bit. Um, and this after working preseason with uh, a women's soccer team um, and, and the football team, uh, it, what you expect to happen doesn't necessarily happen. Uh, and that's because, you know, we expect, you know, an in- increase in these training loads, we're expecting to see fatigue accumulate and HRV decrease. And mm-hmm. what really, what I'm seeing, and, and this largely has to do with, um, temperature conditions. So being in, uh, Tuscaloosa, Alabama in August, it's hot outside. It's over 30 degrees Celsius and, you know, over 80% humidity every day. And, and that's, prob- that's probably a cool day. And pads uh, and everything too in the football team, right? Absolutely. So um, th- this paper that I'm referring to right now is currently in production. I haven't even submitted it yet, but I could tell you um, normally an athlete after a- a- an increase in training load, we're going to see some some pretty substantial reductions in HRV. Um but when you factor in heat stress, uh, that's stimulating some adaptations, uh, uh, particularly plasma volume expansion, um, which, which actually increases heart rate variability. And so when we're a couple days into camp, and I'm thinking this fatigue is accumulating, and they might even be reporting some, some perceived fatigue, um, I'm actually starting to see HRV increase and I'm, and there's evidence or there's research showing that there's something called parasympathetic hyperactivity and overreached athletes, mm-hmm. but these are endurance athletes, you know, th- these football players and, and soccer players are not, um, going through these massive vo- volumes of, of endurance training. It's, uh, you know, it, so parasympathetic hyperactivity in that pers- from that perspective is not what's happening. What, what's happening most likely is this expansion of plasma volume, um, which is stimulating this increase in parasympathetic activity and therefore an increase in HRV, despite the fact that they're feeling fatigued. Um, and, and so I think one might take a look at that and dismiss HRV and say, well, it's not a very good measure of recovery or, or, or fatigue if, if it's increasing while they're getting tired during camp. But I would say, well, you got to uh, interpreted in the appropriate context, it's heart, heart rate variability is probably more appropriately considered a marker of adaptation. Mm-hmm. And if if you have athletes training in the heat, you want plasma volume to expand because um, it, it, it gives you more fluid to work with, so you could sweat a little bit more without it drastically affecting your heart rate, and you could thermoregulate better. So that that's a very positive adaptation to training. Um, now, I would say outside of this preseason in the heat where we were, and, and credit to Martin Boucher for a lot of his work in this and team sport athletes, and he found that increases in plasma volume throughout preseason training are associated with a decrease in exercise heart rate and increases in uh, aerobic uh, exercise and so forth. Um, and I'm pretty sure that's what we were seeing. So so anyone who's applying HRV in athletes and looking uh, you know, only for reductions in HRV to be a meaningful indication of fatigue or recovery... Uh, if you're, if you have athletes training in the heat, you might want to be mindful that, uh, HRV might start to increase after a few days. One, one, uh, previous paper in the American Journal of Sport Medicine found a, almost a, a 10% expansion of plasma volume in, in college football players, you know, with and about a week into camp, which is, which is what I was seeing. So, um, it's amazing. Yeah. The context and the nuance that's involved when, when you start to change parameters, you know, like the, um, ambient temperature and because in, in your original work there with soccer players, obviously having at the start of preseason seeing these greater variances and um, excuse me lower scores in HRV, and then as as the training camp moved on, then correct me if I'm wrong here, the fitter players were you know were seeing improvements in the HRV, whereas some of the players who were perhaps not as uh, adapting as well to the training were still seeing some of those lower scores. Is that is that correct? Yeah, um, and, and it. it 
to interpret a change in HRV, um, looking at the HRV alone is, is going to be very difficult to determine how they're responding. I mean, absolutely. So we take into consideration the wellness questionnaire. Um, we had the, the polar team system. So we were measuring their, their loads with that. Um, it how, tends to how, dovetail pretty well, doesn't it, Andrew? The, the daily wellness and the HRV in, in general terms. In general. Um, I, I'm always uh, reluctant to say yes, because then the expectation is is that there's a perfect relationship there. Sure, sure. Um, one of our recent studies in, uh, in sprint swimmers, uh, we literally examined that. You know, When someone rates their, their sleep quality, their stress, or their fatigue, or soreness, when they rate that better than usual what is their HRV versus when they rate it, you know, what we would consider their average or worse than average. And, and yeah, it was the, the model was significant when they rated that their stress and sleep quality and everything, when it was all better than normal, their HRV on average was, was higher than normal and so on and so forth. So, so in general, there is, there is absolutely a relationship there, but, but there are context dependent factors. Um, and, and, and now you're, I'm kind of starting to think about, uh, heart rate variability applications and using trying to determine recovery or or using a green light or telling you how to train Um, you can be feeling great and well recovered on game day and have a very low heart rate variability score because of some pre-competitive anxiety Mm -hmm. and that i mean your autonomic nervous system like Stephen port just says it plays a fundamental role in the physiological expression of stress now, whether you're stressed from homework or, or you're excited and anxious for a game, it's expressed the same way, but you need to interpret that and, and determine you know, the case. Um, because if an athlete's looking at that score, they might be concerned, oh my gosh, this is telling me I'm not recovered, um, when that's not the case at all. So, um, and that's where I, I sometimes just get reluctant to say that, yes, they, they relate really well. In general, they do, but there's always exceptions uh, to the rule there. And, and the plasma volume changes to during training in the heat is one, uh, pre-competitive anxiety is one you, we could see mismatches in HRV and, and perceptual markers there. Um, also there's something called parasympathetic saturation, which, um, essentially your, if your heart rate is super low, you can end up with really low, uh, heart rate variability at the same time, which, uh, is explained by, just an abundance of acetylcholine in the myocardium uh, from from really high parasympathetic activity, and uh, we tend to that, see that most in the endurance and, and Ironman crowd. Is that uh... yes, absolutely, and and particularly when measured in the supine position, um, and and so we we've moved away. We, we use exclusively uh, the seated or standing position for, for for trying to avoid saturation being one reason. There's other reasons why we like that position as well, but uh, yeah, so. So yes, absolutely. I think HRV can serve as a great indicator of recovery. It could—it's a great indicator of adaptation. Um, but a, a user, a new time user of heart rate variability, really needs to manage their expectations. Um, I, if you go in assuming that high is good and low is bad, and that it's black and white, you're going to end up being a little bit confused and probably disappointed, and you may end up dismissing it um, if you can't interpret some responses in appropriate context. And, and kind of to add on to that, uh, I think a, a major criticism of heart rate variability is, is uh, if someone starts measuring it and they see that it fluctuates quite a bit on a day-to-day basis, um, it's, it, you know, it's kind of dismissed as being not reliable and therefore not useful. And, uh, and kind of what I've learned is if, if you measure HRV for an appreciable amount of time, you find that the, amount, or the magnitude of fluctuation is actually meaningful. It means something. So uh, the amount of fluctuation in your HRV trend on a day-to-day basis changes and it evolves over time and, it's, and it responds based on the, how, how you are responding to training. Um, less fit individuals tend to show much greater day-to-day fluctuation than higher fit individuals. In fact, mm-hmm. when, I look, uh, when I compared the Olympic swimmers uh, at Alabama versus the non-Olympic level swimmers, the Olympic level swimmers, their day-to-day fluctuation during normal training was was a, a, we use a, a, a value called the coefficient of variation, mm-hmm. which is really just their standard deviation normalized to their average, um, and they had levels that were three percent or less. And there was there was only six Olympians, um, but I mean they, they they all during kind of this uh, preparatory training where there was no overload or or anything. I mean there was progressive overload, but we weren't trying to. 
um, overreach anyone. Their coefficient of variation was 3% or less. Um, and so, and what we find is when, when we introduce, uh, you know, we could be starting a training camp or, or we're introducing a novel stimulus, you're going to see much greater day-to-day fluctuation. Um, there's a stimulus taking place. Um, but what should happen over time is is the magnitude of that fluctuation should decrease and your score should become more stable if you're adapting well to the training stimulus. Um, and, and we're finding correlations in, in the highest level athletes uh, in collaboration with uh, Dan Howells um, and, and Olympic level rugby sevens players. We introduce, a, or they, I, I, I just helped analyze the data and write the paper. He, uh, Dan Howells is a strength and conditioning coach and, and they introduced the stimulus. Um, and sure enough, when when training loads spike, there is greater day-to-day fluctuation almost across the board. But then when they go into the second week of intensified training, and I'm expecting things to get worse because mm-hmm. we're increasing loads a second time. And what ends up happening is everyone's scores kind of revert back or, or even get to less and less fluctuation than at baseline. And I'm thinking, well, well that is counter to kind of everything I thought about what fluctuation means. Um, but it... It ended up, I assumed that that's, that second exposure to high-intensity training load was going to increase fatigue even further. That was my, my expected response that we would have observed, and, and that wasn't the case. I think that they increased loads further because they were adapting so well because, I mean, we found a correlation, a pretty strong correlation, negative uh, 0.74, uh, between their change in how much fluctuation they had in their HRV and their change in uh, maximum aerobic speed. The ones who showed the least amount of fluctuation were responding the best or, or you know, performed the best on mm-hmm. the, uh, the aerobic uh, speed test. Um, so, and th- this is just examples of how the magnitude of fluctuation is not meaningless. And I don't think you should dismiss, um, the, the, the heart rate variability as a useful metric because, because that, that amount of variability changes and it, and it actually means something and you could use it to help assess how individuals are responding to training. Yeah, it's fascinating, fascinating stuff. And especially as you mentioned, when you're collecting data over longitudinally over a longer time span, you really start to appreciate how the, the athletes are responding. And, you know, if we continue this conversation on your work in college football players and talk a little bit of in-season monitoring, you know, despite having really rigorous in-season training schedules, you know, the research around markers for that daily physiological recovery status and, you know, for football players, American football players is, is pretty limited. And of course, you've done some work in this area. Can you share a little bit of uh, some insights from from that work and some of the key findings? Absolutely. Um, and I think before we talk about the in-season, we got to talk about the off-season, um, which even preceding the, the preseason program. So the, the sure. first data collection with football took place during spring camp. Um, so spring camp happens uh, after some off-season strength and conditioning training. So they'll lift three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. They'll condition Tuesday, Thursdays. Um, but there's not a whole lot of you know actual football taking place. So um, so when we start spring camp, that's really their their reintroduction to you know football training, putting the pads on, hitting, and so on and so forth. Um, and so one of the, the questions was with measuring HRV and football players is um, one of the questions was, you know, how are they going to respond to training? But more importantly, we were testing if we're capturing HRV at the training facility as opposed to post waking, is, is the data going to be way too noisy to, to tr- meet, find anything meaningful of it? Or, or is it going to is it still somewhat useful despite the fact that there's probably going to be some noise? So th- those were the motivations of using HRV, experimenting with it during spring camp. Um, and based on on the model um, from that uh, sports medicine paper by by Stanley and colleagues, um, what I would expect is the highest fit individuals to show minimal day to day variation because they're recovering well between sessions, whereas the less fit individuals I would expect to show much bigger decrements. And if you know anything about the sport of football, you know that linemen are a pretty unique group of individuals because of their size and stature. I mean, 100%. they're all six foot four, three hundred and twenty pounds. Um, they're really incomparable to any other athlete. Uh, well, I shouldn't say any other athlete, but team sport athlete. Um, and so sure enough, what we were seeing is, is after, uh, and especially cause day one of spring camp was a pretty intense, uh, day of training. The, the training loads were pretty high when I compare them to some of the, the player load values that have been reported in, in some other teams. So a pretty good dose of training and, uh, the linemen, uh, 
we only had five monitored throughout this period, but pretty much every single one of them showed a major drop in HRV um, the first time they were exposed to consecutive day training. Um, whereas the receivers and defensive backs, the more aerobically fit individuals, um, they were pretty much back at baseline the next day. Um, and then the mid-skill guys, um, who are characteristic of both linemen and receivers and DBs in terms of their physical characteristics, they're, they're pretty, you know, they're about anywhere from 220 to 250. Um, and whether you're running back or tight end, I mean, you could be from 5'10 to six foot six. Um, so you have some guys that are bigger that are more like linemen and you have some that are a little bit more like wide receivers and DBs. So we saw a good mix of those guys. Some, some showed reductions and, and some, uh, were pretty much HRV was back to baseline the next day. Um, and then we ran, you know, I just wanted to see does the relationship between the coefficient of variation. So over the entire training camp, uh, the entire spring camp were those showing the greatest fluctuation. Uh, the least fit. And unfortunately, we don't have a standardized fitness test, but I mean, um, the the average player load value throughout the entire four-week camp, we were using kind of as an indicator of training capacity or their chronic workload um, because training was their major stimulus. They were not doing any outside conditioning. So, so um, uh, what we ended up finding was uh, those with the smallest player loads were the linemen, as you would expect, mm-hmm. um, and they had the greatest coefficient of variation the greatest fluctuation whereas the receivers and dbs um they had the greatest player load values they cover the greatest distances they're the most fit it's a requirement of their position and they show the least day-to-day fluctuation so at the end of spring camp we were able to say you know what we were capturing hrv at uh you know a couple hours before practice, we controlled the conditions. I mean, it was the same time of day every time. They eat their meals at the same. So we were able to to, to loosely control some important variables, uh, and it appeared to be reflecting some some useful information. So um, we decided that you know let's continue it through preseason. And I, I've already kind of given you a rundown of what happened in the preseason. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then now, what about the in season? Um, we have one paper out that that basically looked at okay when we perform consecutive day training um, during the week. And in American college football, uh, Tuesdays are the first uh, football training session of the week, and it tends to be the most intensive. So we wanted to see from Tuesday to Wednesday, what are these HRV responses looking like? Um, And what we found is pretty much the same pattern. The receivers and defensive backs are, are for the most part, returned to normal by the next day. Uh, Running backs, linebackers, tight ends show a bit of a reduction, and linemen show the greatest reduction. Um, but there is a difference in magnitude. So in spring camp, the linemen showed really big, uh, large effect size reductions in, in HRV. They went from, just to give some values, I think an average of 75 to 65, a 10-point 10, 10 drop on uh, uh, RMSSD, LN RMSSD multiplied by 20. So 10-point drops pretty substantial. Um, sure. But in, in the in-season, they they showed a significant reduction, but it was about half that. Okay? Um, Interesting. And this was this was based over the first three weeks of training um, to to kind of you know factor in okay there might be some week to week variation but uh, when we averaged it you know the line were still showing that they HRV wasn't fully returned to baseline by the next training day but the magnitude was smaller um, and so you know that naturally well why is it smaller uh, a couple of reasons one the in season practice loads on Tuesday um, weren't weren't uh, as high as the the loads that they were experienced during spring camp or even preseason camp. They're about 15 to 22% lower. And these were large effect sizes. So we know that training intensity affects, you know, the HRV response. And they're actually getting a, a less of a, a dose of training relative to the, the previous time points that we evaluated them. So that's one major reason, probably why we're, why we're seeing less of a reduction in HRV. Um, but also the fact that they just experienced you know four weeks of preseason training in the heat and the adaptations that come along with that which is you know uh, plasma volume expansion the likely uh, increases in fitness and all this stuff which facilitate better recovery from training so uh i I can't say for sure why they're showing less of a reduction the next day the linemen at least um but it probably has to do with fitness level adaptations from preseason training and uh the overall lower training load but um I could tell you right now, uh, <laughs> things things get ugly uh, as the season progresses, particularly for the linemen, um, and that's that's data I'm still working on in terms of uh, writing up the paper. 
Um, but uh, yeah, I can imagine in, in team sport in general, things start to get sort of ugly as the season goes. And I imagine the guys in the trenches um, with, the, with the stress of the physical demands and the physical contact. Um, and so with, with even what you've discussed here of the inability or the reduced ability to recover from some of these sessions, you know, for coaches and support staff trying to address this in terms of some recovery interventions, you know, I know that you know, doing aerobic sessions for bigger guys is not always something that uh, inherently coaches are, are sort of apt to do. But you know, is that a potential um, intervention, or what about even some cold water therapies? What are your What are your thoughts there? Yeah, uh, and this is something that that I I think about often. Uh, you know, what are how can I, I I can't really get too much into the the data of what we saw, but but you can imagine what we saw, particularly among the linemen, and it's how can we prevent this. Um, I, I think uh, there's a place for low intensity aerobic exercise if, uh, you know, if the coaches could buy into that and if the players uh, would be compliant with it, um, could be helpful. Um, culture of football, too, is, uh, you know, after a, a training session, um, you might see some guys just kind, kind of flip off your shoulder pads, walk into the weight room and continue doing some guns or, you know what I mean? Getting some, keep going, which is fine. And uh, you admire the dedication and and what, but the, probably the reality of the situation is after an intense training session where they've probably lost a whole bunch. And I'm specifically talking about the linemen here. They've probably lost a bunch of, uh, fluid from perspiration. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) let's get the pads off as soon as possible. Um, and, whether we're using, you know, cold water immersion in a um, traditional sense where it's a, an ice tub or not, I, I'm not sure that matters as much as cool the body down. And it doesn't necessarily need to be ice, icy cold. Um, it, that would certainly accomplish it effectively. But I know there's debate over, you know, we should be periodizing cold water immersion. It might be blunting adaptations and, and inflammation, which could be important. Um, but uh you know, cool the body down, jumping in a pool and and soaking in that would probably accomplish it, uh, effectively a cooler shower, Mm -hmm. um, or, or just hop in the ice tub. Um, I think that could definitely be effective. One thing that concerns me about linemen, um, due to their size, uh, their neck thickness, they're, they're much more prone to sleep apnea. Um, Mm -hmm. and so like the, the, when we consider what factors really contribute to recovery, I mean, sleep quality is hands down the best one. So, I think if we paid a, a, a little more attention to can we enhance sleep uh, somehow, whether it's the experience, um, it, uh, d- you know, do they have sleep apnea? How is that affecting their sleep? Um, and then, uh, you know, potentially uh, massage therapy. Uh, the, definitely, the cold water immersion could be effective. There, there's we got to be realistic, right? Like so know, many hours in the day for sure. That, but also interventions that might be useful may include um, biofeedback therapy or or uh, yoga or something. I don't know. I don't know that that lineman would buy into that necessarily. <laughs> so, sure. so I mean, there are the culture piece is strong there too, right? Yeah, and then let's not uh, miss the other big thing. Uh, what you're dealing with through through a competitive season is a lot of the physical stress. Um, and my experience is that, um, training itself, um, in high level athletes is, uh, provided the coach isn't just burning out the players with excessive loads, which I mean, which can happen. Um, but assuming the coach isn't doing that, it's not really the training loads that, that cause, uh, these major reductions in HRV that remain chronically suppressed and lead to illness and, and some other you know, things that uh, undesirable responses. Um, it's, it's the combination of training, which they could typically tolerate, um, when you start adding in these additional stressors. Um, I mean, think about it. If you're a college football player, you're stressed about your draft status. You're, you have academics to worry about, to remain eligible. Um, any stressor you could think of starts to become emotional mental, emotional. I mean, what people are saying about you on Twitter, like, we don't have to deal with that. We don't know what that stress is like. Um, or maybe you do. You're <laughs> you <laughs> yeah, got a famous right. podcast here. Um, but, yeah, uh, no, it is a different world, isn't it? To even, uh, a generation ago of, of elite college stars having to deal with just this constant noise of commentary that they can actually not you know, have to actively decide to tune out, uh, versus before you would just go home and then be away from things like that. 
Absolutely. And, and when I was trying to, uh, or when I was looking at some of the available research on linemen and how they're responding throughout a season, there's, there's really not much that's longitudinal throughout the season. I mean, we've got HRV data throughout the entire season. And so we'll be able to show when and what happens and especially what happens to those who show major reductions in HRV. And, uh, it should be pretty enlightening. Um, but some of the available research in some cardiology journals looked at just simple pre and post um, blood pressure and morphological changes in the heart uh, and compared linemen versus non-linemen. And sure enough, from pre to post season, linemen largely become at least pre-hypertensive, if not hypertensive. And they experience different morphological changes in the heart. Um, they're experiencing much more concentric cardiac hypertrophy. Um that they're suggesting may be more pathological than functional, whereas the non-linemen are experiencing more eccentric cardiac hypertrophy, which tends to be a little bit more functional. So, um, Fascinating, yeah. It's incredible how even the diet would play a role in terms of maintaining that uh, caloric intake to maintain the size for the season is a, is a job in itself too, right? Man, you're getting at some variables. I mean, yeah, like there's these players, uh, you know, the stress levels, I'm not sure cortisol is an interesting hormone because it could either be through the roof with high stress or it could be completely blunted. So we'd have to, we'd have to get some, some of those measures, but, uh, you have to imagine with the chronic stress associated with just the, the long term season, the outside stressors that we've talked about, um, and and whether that's you know facilitating a catabolic environment where we're we're starting to lose some lean muscle tissue, um, and it is explaining some of the weight loss we see in certain players. Um, I mean, there's a whole lot of factors into it, um, mm-hmm. but certainly I think managing the 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 big factors that affect your stress and your recovery and so forth. I mean, come down to sleep, managing training load a little bit, but really um, educating the players. Um, and, and really monitoring. I mean, it, it's it, it's interesting. It's so obvious. You're going to see in this data, it's so obvious when things start to go wrong. Um, and if you're not monitoring it in some way, I'm not saying you have to do HRV, but it's it's pretty simple to do. You see it, especially in the linemen. And, and, and even in the non-linemen, um, because the, the non-linemen handled the season much better, but then there's a few. There's always inter-individual variation. There's a few. Um, where you have some really elite players showing some some responses where you're like, what's going on with this guy? Uh, and you start asking around if, you know, the athletic trainer, nutritionist, getting to know, um, you know, some characteristics. and Bit of background. And, yeah, and you might learn that, you know, it could be a lifestyle or, or a diet issue that uh, that may be contributing. Yeah, great um, red flag to start that conversation is uh, could be pretty valuable, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, it's so and it's so nice to to when you're monitoring multiple players in the same position, you know, you don't have to necessarily look at is their their overall average the same, but really is their trend. How how what is the difference in the trend? And when so many of them who aren't getting injured or aren't getting sick are showing a pretty stable trend. I mean, there's some day-to-day fluctuation, don't get me wrong, but there's no meaningful change in the rolling average. And and so they're they tend to be, I would say, in tolerating training pretty well. Um but then someone who's built pretty much the same way is responding entirely differently and has cold and flu symptoms from time to time. Um, and it just gives you a great opportunity to ask some questions, engage the athlete and, and say, okay, look, what's contributing to this? Because it's different for every individual. It could be a diet issue with one player, could be a sleep issue with another. Um, and, and so HRV, just if you start to see these changes, it, it, it doesn't tell you anything about what the, the problem is. It just tells you that there might be a problem. And then that's where you got to start, uh, you know, connecting the dots on, on what may be contributing to this. But, um, you know, every team is different. Uh, you know, what, what, what I observed in that specific year with that specific team, does it apply to all these other teams? I don't know. Um, but, uh, but I think we do need to pay a little closer attention to linemen throughout the season and try and mitigate um, some of these unfavorable responses that we're seeing. Hundred percent, yeah, very well said. And you know, if we that concept of the smaller skill players and the bigs, obviously more pronounced in in physical sports like American football or rugby. But if we bring that over to basketball, I know you've got experience in basketball as well. Do you, would there be any kind of transfer there in terms of some of the potentially seeing some similar themes with some of the smaller skill players versus the bigs over the course of a season with obviously just a slightly different somatotype, but I mean, there's some, some pretty heavy and tall guys as well in terms of, uh, 
this total season load there. Yeah. So, so my experience with basketball is actually quite limited. Um, I, I haven't had, uh, the opportunity to monitor like a team throughout an extended period of time. So this would be entirely speculative. Um, go for it. <laughs> a little bit of reckless speculation. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I would assume that larger players, particularly if their aerobic fitness is a little bit lower, um, would tolerate this length of a season less, uh, you know, not quite as well as uh, smaller, more aerobically fit individuals. Just just based on, I mean, that relationship's held, um, you know, with with the football guys, with soccer, with rugby. Um, so I don't see why it would be much different. Um, it, I mean, it, it, it is a different sport. How, I mean, it depends on how many games a week and in the travel, sure. um, drawing on uh, a recent study that Dan Howells and I put out, I, we looked at the effect of, uh, consecutive rugby sevens tournaments and, yes, yes. yeah, and Olympic level players. And we had a, or they had a domestic tournament one weekend or, and, and domestic doesn't mean they're, they're playing, uh, you know, just domestic teams. This was an, they're playing elite level opponents locally um, one weekend and then the next weekend they're flying, you know, a couple countries over and they're playing another tournament against similar opponents. Um, but now we add in the, uh, the component of travel. Um, and, and essentially what we found is relative to a seven day baseline, the dem- the tournament held locally provoked some changes in HRV. They weren't statistically significant. Um, but when we look at the individual level, I think, uh, you know, seven out of 10 players, demonstrated a reduction in HRV that would be considered meaningful, though not statistically significant. So, so a local tournament, you know, it's, it's not going to crush HRV, um, in these elite level players, but I mean, then they have less than five days to prepare for this next tournament. Um, and so when we, uh, when we look, evaluate HRV responses to the subsequent tournament, um, we saw much larger reductions in HRV. Um, now I can't say, that this happens all the time with every single travel because they had a unique experience in that, uh, they had an early flight. I think they were all up around six or six thirty AM. Um, and they missed a flight connection. So they ended up having to take a bus the rest of the way to the venue or to the hotel. They didn't get until 3 AM. So they're up at six, didn't get to bed till about three. Yeah, uh, and then they have a tournament to deal with in the next couple of days. So, um, that is probably largely contributing to the, the responses that we saw, um, because there was no difference in, in GPS loads between tournaments. Now that doesn't mean that there wasn't more collisions. I, 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 we didn't have that data. Um, but, but the high speed running, the total distance, um, all that was pretty similar between the tournaments. So it wasn't the training load. Um, it probably wasn't the, the match load that contributed to these differences in HRV responses. But when you combine this, the stress of competition with the stress of disrupted travel, um, and maybe potentially some disturbed, uh, chronobiology, depending on how far you're traveling and this, and that could always be an issue. But if if your meal times are changing, you're sleeping in a different bed, all these little things probably contribute a little bit. Um, now when travel goes smoother and, and you're, and, and it's going on a more regular basis, it's probably tolerated much better. Um, but certainly, uh, it, it, that's a, a stressor to consider. Uh, absolutely. And definitely something, um, you know, the Canada basketball will be going to China later this year in September for the world cup. And obviously for all our NBA players, travel is domestic. It's, it's short flights. So as you mentioned, these kind of novel experiences where all of a sudden you're having to log 18 hours or, or plus on a plane can be pretty disruptive. Yeah. Um, especially when HRV is so good at picking up things in those so-called other 22 hours when you're not training, you know, that you mentioned sleep and travel, mental, emotional stress. So, you know, for, for people listening in, you know, the athletes, the practitioners, the coaches who maybe are already using HRV, but want to start using it if they're not already, um, you know, obviously there's a lot of apps. Does it depend on an athlete's goals in terms of, um, which one might be more suitable? What are your, what are your thoughts there? Um, I, I mean, in terms, if you want to start up, uh, implementing HRV, uh, first and foremost, I would say use a third party validated tool. Um, definitely. Yep. Uh, yeah, I, I'm a big fan of apps in terms of their, they enable the implement convenient implementation, especially, you know, we could use a heart rate strap, um, and even more conveniently, we could use a finger sensor, um, that's what I love about the apps and I'm appreciative of them. What I don't love about 
apps is is that they try and tell you, and not all of them, but some some are trying to tell you if you're recovered or not based on your HRV. They're telling, trying to some are t- trying to tell you how you should train, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I understand why they want to do that, um, but. I, I don't know that anyone who has a, a really deep understanding of physiology, and I'm not suggesting that I'm there yet, but um, it's recovery is a little more complicated than than an isolated measure. Um, it's it's more complicated than your HRV score today versus yesterday. Um, so definitely use an app, but but learn to interpret the data um, yourself a little bit. So make sure the app is giving you access to the raw data so that you could see it, an app that visualizes the data, or if it doesn't, if you know how to do that in Excel or whatever program you want to use, um, how the data evolves over time. Because I told you the day-to-day fluctuation is meaningful. The The direction of, of the overall trend is meaningful. So, so first and foremost, get a third-party validated application. Um, I, would me- I would recommend measuring HRV in the seated position. Uh, at the same time of day as best as possible. Post-waking would be uh, ideal circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but if you can control conditions to a reasonable extent at the training facility or at a hotel, and it's still the reasonably the same time of day, um, uh, you could probably still get some meaningful data. It's going to be a little bit noisier, um, but but it can be useful. Um, uh, in terms of, of the most convenient way to do this, uh, we've used a one-minute stabilization period. So have them sit there. Uh, we've used in the athletic training room on the training table, for example, uh, where they just sit with their back up against the wall, and I, I let them hang out for a minute or two. Then I, I pop the finger sensor on. Um, they could take the iPad. They do the measurement themselves for about a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that's probably the most convenient and the shortest protocol we can get away with. Um in terms of doing this frequently, I mean, you're just not going to be able to get away with five-minute measures, which are tend to be the gold standard. It, I, I don't in my environments Compliance that I compliance goes down pretty quick. Right? Oh, oh man, yeah. <laughs> I mean, after week one, yeah. Um, you do want to. One of the important variables you might want to control for is uh, recent meal or fluid ingestion. Mm-hmm. Um, this is actually some of the studies I have some of my grad students working on right now is looking at what is the effect of water ingestion and Gatorade ingestion. Um, we know that there is an effect. Uh, there is an effect. Uh, Hydration James, and HRV, right? Yeah, Heather James Heather's and his colleagues published a paper that just said, "Look, if you drink, well, I don't know, might have been 500 mils of water, it, it has a pretty robust in- causes a pretty robust increase in HRV." But the question that I is okay, I'm asking is, yeah, we know there's an effect of water, um, but how long is it lasting, and is it any different with Gatorade? Because um, in my experience in the applied sports setting, um, both as a former athlete and working with teams, they're, and rightfully so, encouraged to hydrate before training. So if you're trying to get HRV in the hours before a training session, you got to be mindful if, if, if their fluid ingestion, if they just drank 500 mils of water or Gatorade and then you measure their HRV, it's going to be completely inflated and you might as well throw it out. Okay. Yeah, especially so when they're not consistent one day, they have that pint and the next day they don't. And Yeah. And, and preliminary results, we need more subjects still. Um, Gatorade may have a, a, a bigger and longer effect, um, probably because the sugar content, um, I, I've seen some papers, that, you know, that increases in HRV uh, or HRV increases in response to like an, uh, an injection of insulin. Um, so if I'm connecting dots, I'm thinking, you know, you drink Gatorade that spikes sugar. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an insulin response which increases parasympathetic activity. So, so there may be a more exaggerated response and maybe an even more prolonged response uh, from Gatorade um, versus water. Um, so we're, and, and we were only looking at uh, a total of 30 minutes after ingestion, um, and it didn't really come back down to baseline yet. So, um, what we did with football is we were, we were aiming for 90 minutes post meal, um, or at least not 90 minutes fasted as best as possible. And, and I'll tell you, I mean, you cannot control for that perfectly yeah, all the time. Football team, right? Yeah. There's going to, there, like I said, there's going to be some noise, but, but again, you're not, you're not measuring HRV to make a huge determination or decision right then and there. You're measuring it for the long haul and looking at some day-to-day changes because suppose they have water one day and it messes up their HRV. It's not a big deal. Um, What you're you're looking at is the trend over time. Um, And so that gets gets me kind of to the next recommendation is first you have to establish a baseline when you start using HRV. You have to see what's normal 
Um, and, and this could be under normal training conditions. Um, you wouldn't want to start on, on, I mean, you can start any time, but without a baseline, you're kind of guessing, um, if, if you're in a good position now or not. Um, so one week tends to be, uh, a good amount of time, um, to, to see what your normal day-to-day fluctuation is, what your average is. And then you could go from there and just see, is the amount of fluctuation increasing or decreasing and you could just visualize it as are the scores hrv values are they scattering or are they more clustered closely together um the more they fluctuate is is indicative of some type of stress or stimulation there's something going Mm -hmm. on um that's and i consider that to be your first indication that there is there's some stimulation happening um and to be mindful of it it's not a major warning sign uh but it is an indication um, where you really want to be concerned is when the scores start falling below baseline consistently and not bouncing back up to base or to at or above baseline. That's that's uh, in my experience. If you let that continue long enough, bad things happen in the form of injury, illness, um, and and we have some data that we'll get out there soon enough on that. But uh, and, and so. Once you have that baseline, um, it, we were measuring HRV like two or three days a week with the football guys throughout the season. Um, and so we were using a three-day rolling average. And, uh, you know, one bad score, no big deal. Even if it was sure. even if it was a, a, a true negative score and there was some fatigue, so what? Um, they're athletes. That, that's not the end of the world. But if we're in, in season and the goal is not to accumulate fatigue – Okay, then I'm going to keep an eye on that trend, and if it's if it's starting to stay below baseline, then then there might be that's that would time uh, for a conversation, time to time do a little bit of detective work. Um, and you may not have the power to adjust training loads, um, and that's just the reality of the situation. But that doesn't mean that you can start to pay a little bit more attention to nutritional factors, to recovery interventions and so on and so forth. It depends on the dynamic between, uh, you know, who programs the practices and the loads and, and who's monitoring HRV. Um, but that's it. I mean, those are, uh, and then read, learn about, you know, what has been shown in terms of how HRV responds. Don't be hyper reactive. If you take a black and white approach where high is good and low is bad, you're, you're going to drive yourself crazy. Um, observe the trend tail right absolutely and and mark one thing i want to add because i think it's important um someone who's monitoring hrv in athletes it may be a strength and conditioning coach it may be could be a nutrition and uh the sport nutritionist it could Mm -hmm. be an athletic trainer It, it could be an intern right every program could be a little bit different there there needs to be communication between the strength and conditioning and the sports medicine and the dietitian, this data needs to be shared because um, HRV will, will decrease in response to some form of stress. It could be excessive training. It could be poor sleep. It could be whatever. Um, and, and, you know, a strength and conditioning coach could handle that. Um, but the same type of trend that's associated with fatigue and, and poor training adaptation I'm pretty sure is also what we would see in response to a concussion. Um, there's plenty of research out there that shows that, you know, H- HRV goes down in response to concussion. Um, and I, and it does. And if you're a strength and conditioning coach trying to monitor fatigue and, and looking at this stuff and, and an unreported concussion can, can be an issue. So when, when you see a trend, characteristic of fatigue or, or poor training adaptation um it's time for a conversation among a few different people you know that wear different hats sports medicine sport nutrition etc um f- because above all else above all else the health status of the individual is most important um and and it goes back to the limitation of hrv being that it's not telling you what the issue is but it is a, a pretty easily obtained objective physiological marker that when it when it's out of whack it's, it is telling you something you don't know what it is you have to determine what it is and uh 
if you're not even considering that it could be something like that, then you might miss it and 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 that could be problematic. So Yeah, it's uh, so important to have all that communication, constant communication with the team and have everyone on board as you mentioned, because HRV is encompassing so many different variables. So, you know, Andrew, fantastic stuff here today. Before we wrap up, I've got one last question for you. Sure. In the next five or ten years, where do you see the evolution of the research on HRV and team sports? Whew. Um I think uh, there's all these wearable devices that are are coming out right now. Um, I'm not sure that that's the ultimate answer. I think they, they for personal use, I think they're great. I think there's some ethical concerns. Uh, <laughs> I mean, what what an athlete does at 11 p.m. on any day of the week, how much is that anyone's business other than theirs, right? So, hundred percent. Uh, so the wearables again. I love the technology because it's 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 enabling things. It's 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 allowing us to collect data more conveniently, for the purposes of, of helping this athlete perform optimally, maintain their health status. Right. Um, I think there is such thing as data overload. I think uh, nocturnal heart rate variability. There needs to be more research there because um, sleep apnea is not all that uncommon, and, and actually obstructed breathing has been shown to increase HRV. So if we're trying mm. to derive, if we're trying to derive heart, a heart rate variability uh, value from sleep, from an athlete that has sleep apnea, um, we may be getting these false positives saying that, oh, they had a great sleep. They have really high variability. Um, we got to be careful there. So I think, uh, again, I, I think that it could be very powerful and useful. Um, but I think what we need to do is, uh, is uh, iron out methodology in terms of what is the best position to measure this in because the correlation and from data that I have, uh, the correlation between supine and standing HRV uh, is like 0.6 maybe. Um, so 36% of the variation in your standing HRV is explained by your supine HRV or vice versa. Um, wow. It's not the same, right? So we need to be consistent and we need to, and, and I don't think supine is useless at all. I think I think supine measures might be more related with aerobic fitness, and I think standing measures are more sensitive to the day to day stress and, and training fatigue and so forth. It's a hunch I have based on some data, um, but we need to iron out methodology. We need to know, you know, what is the easiest, simplest, quickest, convenient way to obtain HRV. When's the best time to do it? How long from meal time? Um, uh, can we shorten it even less than two minutes? Um, and and my interest in HRV, I'm a proponent of HRV. I think it's extremely useful, but but I I don't pretend that that it's a, extremely magical and it and it, it it's it's a single marker that tells you everything you need to know. We need to just find out what it is useful for. We need more information to determine how it should be used and what we should use it for, but also what we shouldn't and how mm. you know we we shouldn't be trying to infer too much from an HRV score, like for neuromuscular performance, it may or may not be related at all. Um, so when you're talking about uh, assessing recovery status based on HRV, um, if you want performance recovery, then measure vertical jump or, or something. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would never recommend that someone use HRV in isolation, but but the more inputs we could get from from different markers of neuromuscular performance and fitness and, and psychological mental stress and sleep quality, um, how we could integrate all of this information to better interpret HRV responses. And then, then, then we have a better understanding of how we could use HRV to, to guide training and make interventions along with these other markers. Um, but also when to say, yeah, HRV isn't telling us anything about this particular item over here. So, yeah, that's, um, that's fantastic, Andrew. I mean, really, um, Phenomenal insights, some great wisdom here around the use and application of HRV, especially for team sports. You know, for folks who want to stay connected with your phenomenal work and keep up with your research, where's the best way to uh, keep in touch with you? Yeah, well, first, I just want to say, if, if you're at all interested in pursuing a master's degree, um, come check us out at uh, Georgia Southern Get in Savannah. Get that vitamin D up at the same time. Man, we're 30 minutes from the beach. We got great restaurants. Um and uh, we're doing some cool HRV research here. So if, if that's something you're interested in, uh, shoot me an email. Um, I'm on Twitter. Uh, my handle's at Andrew underscore flat. Um, I have a blog, uh, hrvtraining.com, um, where I just, lately it's really just me posting our most current research. Uh, but every now and then something will be on my mind and I might uh, be motivated to write a few notes down there. Um, but <laughs> honestly, I'm finding that... Uh, Blogs are, are getting less and less hits, 
And uh, if you have something to say, just put it out on Twitter or Facebook because people will read it. Uh, that barrier of clicking a link, um, amazing I, think, <laughs> I think, is limiting uh, that kind of stuff. So uh, more and more, I'm just putting thoughts out on Twitter lately because I think uh, they'll get read more than, than a blog. So anyway. Awesome. We'll definitely include the links the, there for the Twitter and, and also to the hrvtraining.com uh, in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Andrew, thanks again for taking the time. Thanks again for everyone else tuning in. If you have any questions for Andrew or want to leave a comment on today's episode, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. Of course, if you enjoy the show, take a minute, subscribe on YouTube, iTunes, or your favorite podcasting platform. Fantastic. Thanks for listening, guys, and we'll see you guys all next week. The Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcasts.